Hi, I'm Bernard Fraser, and you're listening to The Essence of Cool. Today on the show, we talk to singer-songwriter, composer, educator, and radio host Blair Packham. Blair exploded onto radio waves and music television in the 80s and 90s as a singer of Canadian power-pop band The Jitters. He has released three much-heralded solo albums, including 2017's Unpopular Pop, and has composed for TV and film, taught songwriting, organized numerous music workshops, and was the co-host of the long-running radio show In the Studio. Blair is one of the most well-respected singer-songwriters in Canadian music and has worked with the likes of former Barenaked Ladies frontman Stephen Page, Juno award-winning singer-songwriter Ron Sexsmith, and the band's Rick Danko. Today, Blair makes his case for why country legend Dolly Parton, rapper Keisha Fresh, and the great Steve Earle are the essence of cool. Let's get started. Blair Packham, welcome to The Essence of Cool. Thank you so much, Bernard. This is a real pleasure for me. Um, you know, I've kind of followed your career for many, many years, as I think you may know. <laughs> and uh, I've always really enjoyed your work. And so it's a it's a real treat for me to get to talk to you about this. Um, I, I want to start with uh, Dolly Parton, your first choice. And... I want preface it by saying, I unfortunately, in a in an episode, I believe it was with Rob Proust, uh, formerly of the Spoons and Honeymoon Suite, we were chatting, and I, I was citing examples of people who I didn't think were cool, and she was among them. <laughs> and uh, in the last two days, I've done a fair bit of research, watched a lot of uh, old talk shows and uh, old interviews with Dolly, and I have since radically changed my mind. <laughs> There's just something about her that is uniquely cool. I, so, I, go ahead. No, I think so, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to argue for that point. <laughs> okay, so, but the, here's the first question. What is your definition of cool? I think it's it's someone who doesn't care so much about what other people think. And, and uh, when I say that, I don't mean that they're thoughtless and I don't mean they're cruel, but that, that if someone else has a problem with, you know, what it is they're doing, they may consider that and they may even factor it into their behavior, but they're not doing it just because of what somebody else thinks. They're, they would make changes because it fit what they're trying to do and what they're trying to, you know, what they're trying to put across. So, yeah, for me, it's not about, you know, I think a lot of people would dwell on surface stuff like, um, you know, oh, it's the guy in the leather jacket, you know, or it's, right. you know, or, or whatever the definition of cool. It's the guy in the, in the, you know, in the bell-bottom pants if we're in the 60s or 70s, you know. Um, that's not it. I don't think so. Well, here's the thing. I've done about, we've recorded about eight, nine episodes so far, mm-hmm. and the common definitions have been... Uh, uh, uncompromising, don't give a shit what the critics or the fans think, push the boundaries, always do the unexpected, and are ever-changing. 
Would you agree with some or maybe all of those? I'd, I'd agree with some of them. I don't think ever changing is a necessity. I mean, in a world where change is the only constant, where where right. change is inevitable, I think it's kind of nice if somebody sticks with with uh, what they believe in and what they feel and and you know and is true to, to themselves. You know, if part of what what is you know makes up them themselves is uh, you know make makes up their worldview is is you know a necessity to change. You know. Maybe like David Bowie, who felt the need right. to evolve. Um, I think that's great. But there are other people who don't evolve or didn't evolve at all, and that's fine with me, too. And I'm glad you said that, because that was the very point that I was going to argue, in that uh, Dolly doesn't seem to have truly changed. She's certainly grown in popularity, and she perhaps has somewhat outgrown her country roots, but she doesn't really seem to have significantly changed. I agree, a hundred percent. She's, you know, starred in Hollywood movies. She's been, um, she's, you know, been awarded every award you can think of. Right. And and yet she uh, still speaks plainly. Um, she, she, you know, she's in the in the very conservative world of country music. Um, uh, she expresses herself uh, in a very human way. Um, She's very, uh, she's kind, and you can see that. And she's not, she doesn't worry about, you know, if, if I, I don't know who she supported in the presidential election, but I do know she doesn't think much of Trump, and she's not afraid of saying that. Um, uh, you know, even though, you know, in the country music world, you may be crossing many of your fans, but she doesn't seem to let that affect her, and I think that's cool. I kind of want to take you back to a young Blair Packham, say in your, your early teens. Is Dolly someone that you would have listened to or who were you listening to? I, it, she wouldn't have been somebody I was listening to. I would have thought she was uncool at the time, and that's because I was young and foolish. But um, <laughs> uh, she uh, would have seemed really hokey to me. But, you know, now hokey, I, I think she goes well beyond hokum. You know, she, I, I, sure, there are hokey aspects to what she does, corny, corny, you know, things. But, but I think that she's, um, I think she's really real. When I was a kid, you know, as a, as a little kid, I listened to the Beatles. I was addicted to the Beatles as a, as a kid, and that continues, it continues to this day, really. I mm. often describe myself as a recovering Beatle maniac. <laughs> uh, my name is Blair. I'm a recovering Beatle maniac. <laughs> the whole room goes, hi, Blair. Um, so... I don't know uh, the the Beatles, but but then you know obviously it went on from there. I I became a, a huge blues fan and uh, and and loved BB King, and I liked jazz as well. I met Benny Goodman once at Massey Hall. Wow. Um, yeah, I'm that old, and uh, but I was, I was I was like 13 or 14. But that yeah. same year, I went to see the Tubes play, and this is before the Tubes <sighs> had had hits. They were still an underground avant-garde kind of band, and and their first album wasn't even out yet, and they filled Massey Hall on their reputation um were they doing the big show with the motorcycle and the um the whole the whole stage show at that point yeah there was a whole stage show i don't recall a motorcycle but i do recall about about 35 or 40 people on stage during white punks punks on dope at the end and uh, uh they were singing uh white punks on dope uh <laughs> at the end and uh fee waybill quay lude was playing his Q-shaped guitar on his literally 18-inch heels. He had to be helped out, and then and then the, all the guitar amplifiers toppled upon him in a cataclysmic.
cataclysmic uh, climax wow. of the show. And they were all cardboard boxes painted to look like uh, speaker cabinets. But it was fantastic. And yeah. and there were topless ladies, which at the time in my life, I had never seen any topless ladies in, in real life. So you know, for me, was, it was, was that in the middle of Don't Touch Me there with the restyles? Yes. Perhaps. Yes, <laughs> exactly. And uh, and so, yeah, so I had pretty broad taste. Um, you know, uh, as I say, I, I, you know, I saw the Benny Goodman Quartet and, and I and I wow. saw B.B. King probably five times in my teens alone um and met him uh, the second time um and uh what else oh i loved john prine john prine changed my life oh um, yeah you know i had gone from wanting to be in a band like the beatles to wanting to front a band like bb king to wanting to play solo and blow people's minds with the, my my witty and pithy songs like john prine and then i became a fan of steve goodman and um you know i liked I liked some rock bands. I liked Led Zeppelin, and I liked, uh, I liked, um, you know, I liked the Who a lot, mo- mostly because they were, you know, almost contemporaries of the Beatles, um, and from the '60s, and they had that very cool '60s attitude. I liked them less in the '70s, but I still liked them. Um, but I really got into uh, um, in the '70s. I-, I was into Edgar Winter and Johnny Winter, of course, as we all were. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and then punk hit and Elvis Costello became my next Beatles basically. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you get to Dolly Parton? Well, um, I have to credit, uh, Elvis Costello with that really, because his, his, uh, explorations in music have been so, um, like I'm, there's a word for it, but I'm not sure what it is. He, uh, is it Catholic tastes? He, he just likes everything. I mean, right. anything that's good. And so, you know, he'll do country music and he'll do, um, he'll do orchestral music and he'll do experimental music and he'll do, you know, jazz ish sort of stuff. And, and it was his, uh, willingness to, you know, I always had a soft spot for country music anyway, and I still do. Um, and, and that would come from John Prine and, and Steve Goodman to a degree. Mm-hmm. But, um, I think, I think when, uh, yeah, listening to John Prine and then and seeing Elvis Costello record a, a country record, I, I think I, I just, I don't know. And then I mean, Dolly Parton, I've always thought she's really beautiful. I mean, really beautiful in a very, very made-up kind of way, kind of plastic way. Right. But, but I think still really beautiful. And when she speaks, her voice is lovely. And I, and I, find, she, I find her very sincere. And... Um, and I think when you know, as I became a, a better songwriter, um, I appreciated her songwriting. I mean, her her songwriting. Most country artists don't write their own songs. Right. Dolly Parton does, and uh, she she writes incredible songs. And uh, so my respect for her has has zoomed enormously over the last twenty years. Well, let's talk a little bit about that because um, here's a she's a. Uh, really prolific songwriter. I read that she has written over 3000 songs and that's probably an underestimation, I would imagine. Um, And, you know, her songs are covered. Jolene has been covered dozens of times by everyone in their aunt, including a punk band. Uh, I don't know if you've heard the me first and the gimme gimme's version of Jolene, but it's fantastic. Oh, I bet. Yeah. Yeah. There's an electro pop version. Uh, the white stripes did a version. What is it about her songs that resonate so much? Well, I think, I think unlike a lot of stuff in Nashville where it's, it's professional songwriters trying to write a hit, 
I think she's writing to express herself and to express thoughts and feelings that other people have. And, uh, and I think it's real. I really do. Um, I don't know. Like I, I have this argument occasionally with, with people who are far cooler than I, I will ever be. And, and really it's important to them how cool they are. <laughs> and, and they, they find, you know, Dolly Parton and country music, uh, you know, generally cloying and, uh, saccharine and corny and all those things. And sure. Some of it really, really is no question, but you know, there's, there's some real, Ness in there. You know, one of the things about country music that I, I really like is it, it addresses stuff that pop music doesn't. Pop music is concerned with relationships. It's concerned with, it's, there's a lot of concern with what we're going to do tonight. I don't know if you noticed that. You know, yes. tonight, you know, everything's <laughs> tonight. And, and nothing bad is ever going to happen tonight, you know, in those songs. It's always, it's always about how it's going to be great tonight and everything's going to be amazing and we're going to party like it's, you know, whatever. And it's all going to happen tonight and so forth. Well, country music is a, a lot of it is about what happened yesterday or years ago. And it's about regret and it's about mature subjects like death, you know, yeah. I mean, you don't hear, except in like very dramatic uh, songs by young people where they, you know, they want to, I don't know. I, I'm not sure what it is really, but, but there's a, you'll hear about death in those songs, but in country music, it's very real. And it's, you know, there's that, that, um, is it a Tim McGraw song? Um, live like you were dying where, where, uh, he says at the beginning, um, I was in my early forties with a lot of life before me when a moment came that stopped me on a dime. I spent most of the next days looking at the x-rays, talking about the options and talking about sweet time. So there we are eight lines into the song. We already know that the singer, whoever he is, has cancer. Right. And they never use the word cancer, by the way. So it's, right. it's, you know, it's, it's a very heavy song. And the whole idea of the song is, you know, what do you, what do you do when you're faced with that kind of, you know, inevitability, which we all are, by right. the way. Um, but with somebody who's got a terminal disease, of course, they know the deadline. And uh, the question is, what do you do in the face of that? And the, and the answer in that song is to celebrate every moment. And to me, that's really real. You know, that's, yeah. that's not, I don't know, there's so much bullshit in the, in the world of lyric writing, and some of it I like, but, right. but some of it I don't. And, 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 you know, I don't know, it's really real. And there seems to be sort of layers to Dolly's songs in particular, because, um, you know, on the surface, I, I think of, you know, one of her, her early hits, Dumb Blonde. On the surface, I mean, the title suggests that, you know, she's just another dumb blonde, but there's a real um, serious narrative to that song. Yeah. Yeah. And she seems to do that quite a bit, no? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think she she takes common tropes um, and uh, turns them on their head a little bit. Um, you know, you have to know that if Dolly Parton has a song called "Dumb Blonde," she's not going to say, "Yeah, I'm a dumb blonde," you know. And she's, you know, she's going to. She, it's it's social commentary, and right. uh, and and I think that social commentary that comes from a good place. Yeah. So what what was the first song that you remember hearing by Dolly that really hit you in that way? I think it was her version of I Will Always Love You, which isn't, you know, relatively speaking, that long ago. Um, I would see her on TV, you know, when I was a kid. When there wasn't much music on TV, 
really any music was in, in interesting to me. So whether it was the Shirley Icard show uh, from Halifax, I remember watching that like every week religiously because they, there was a band on it. There was a live band right. and, and right. they didn't have that on TV. And uh, so if Hee Haw was on, they always had a musical guest. So I'd watch yeah. Hee Haw and I'd laugh at the corny jokes and my mom would always sniff. Like she'd walk into the room and go, oh no, you're watching that. <laughs> and, you know, and so partly I was watching to see Barbie Benton. Um, right. <laughs> of course, but uh, but then you know they might there might be a performance by Dolly Parton and and uh, and you know those songs they I just found them moving. Um, but yeah, probably I will always love you, which I think I think makes an incredible use of one syllable. Um, like really, I admire that as a songwriter. Ah, yeah, you know it goes on. Um, but I, I, I think it's, I think it's fantastic, and and I think, talk about a simple uh, expression of emotion. Yeah, I will always love you. Period. Yeah. You know, it's just like, you know, somebody may say, well, there's no poetry there. It's like, well, I don't need need to hear about castles and fairies and and you know the wind whipping down the street. I sometimes want to just hear the those words. You know. Yeah. And I will always love you. It's it's heavy to me. It's quite heavy. So she starts her career. I mean, it sounds like she'd been, uh, music was in her life from the beginning. I think she wrote her first song at f the age of five or something. Um, gosh, what was it called? Little Tiny Tassel Tot <laughs> at the age of five years oh, old. Right. And she said she just had this real gift for, for rhyme and a real gift for melody. Um, she gets on the Porter Wagner show, I guess, in the late 60s. Um, and she becomes a bona fide country star. But at what point did she become this kind of worldwide superstar that transcended just the country world? Well, I would think, I don't, I don't know. I'm certainly not an expert on her career, but I, I, I would think it was with uh, nine to five, uh, the, the movie with Jane Fonda and L Lily Tomlin. Um, you know, she, uh, she was a co-star uh, with with those genuine Hollywood stars, especially Jane Fonda at the time. Yeah. You know, was was a major star, and um, uh, and Dolly, you know, helped carry that movie and her theme song. Her song was the theme. Um, so, I would think it was then. Uh, I mean, they didn't they win the Oscar for best song. I think you're right. Yeah. I think you're right uh, because that was yeah. She's she's the. Now, what is it? What do they call them? The people who win all of the sort of the major awards. They win an Emmy. They win a, 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 a Grammy. They win a Tony. And she has won all four. And I think that's that, an e EGOT. An EGOT. Yeah. Right? That's a, it's, a, it's an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony. Tony, that's right. Wow. And uh, yeah, I think 9 to 5 was uh, responsible for one of those. Yeah. Um, she is seems to be such, and you, you uh, alluded to this earlier, uh, such a lovely person, such a genuine person. And that seems to play out in her real life too. I mean, she seems to be quite a philanthropist and yeah, she, and, 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 uh, and a, uh, what, what's the, an ethical investor. She invested a million dollars in the development of the Moderna COVID-19, um, vaccine. That's right. I heard that. And 
you know, and that's fantastic. And that, you know, frankly, I think it's what all people who can afford to do it should be doing at this time. Yeah. Um, but she did it. And I think that, you know, uh, I mean, she is, you know, to be fair, she is, um, I think she's worth $500 million. I think she's one of the wow. wealthiest women in, if not the wealthiest woman in music. Yeah. Um, but yeah, to me, investing in uh, the... Uh, here, I'll sing it for you. Investing in vaccine, 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 <laughs> vaccine. Well done. Thank you. Uh. <laughs> um, you know, thinking about Dollywood, um, you know, somebody with that kind of money who was simply looking to make more money uh, could have taken a concept like that and placed it in, you know, the theme park capitals of the world, like, you know, LA or, or somewhere in Florida, but she put it in her, in her backyard essentially because she wanted to help the people she grew up with. Yeah. Give them jobs. You yeah. Know, I, I, I think that's a genuine, I, Here's the thing. For all her layers of makeup and her mountains of wigs and so forth, she is a very she strikes me as a very genuine person. I don't know her, um, you know. So, so who really knows? But um, I think that, you know, I think she's very real, and yeah. uh, and and I and she likes to she likes to make fun of that image of hers, which I think is also cool. That is cool. That is cool. That's one of the things that came across in virtually every interview that I watched over the last couple of days is she loves to poke fun at herself and she prefers to do it first before, uh, you know, the rags get to her. So. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, he, you know, so she's 74 years old. Yeah, now I'm no, read, reading no. off the Wiki, Wikipedia page here. She's had 44 top 10 albums, 10 Grammys. Um, she's 74, but she doesn't seem to be slowing down. No. That's amazing too. What is it about her? What is it about her that keeps her going? Well, I think she has uh, the support and the interest of her fans, and I think that's going to keep you going. You know, if you feel somebody's people are actually paying attention, then you're going to respond. Uh, you know, personally, I find it hard to rationalize right now. You know, making and releasing a record because I feel like, you know, because I'm not Dolly Parton in any way. Uh, you know, and I and I feel like I'm not sure if anybody will be listening. You know, Dolly Parton is pretty sure somebody somewhere will be listening. Yeah, and I think enough. that I think that can help keep you young. Yeah, what do you think her legacy is, or will be? I should say. Well, aside from her mountain of uh, of of great songs, I mean, yeah. truly great songs, not just mediocre songs, and not just a lot of songs, but some, you know, a handful of truly great songs, which is, I think, uh, a huge legacy. Um, but I think beyond that, um, you know, she'll she'll she's an ethical person who who you know doesn't crow about her ethics, but people all around her talk about her ethics all the time. I think that that an ethical person in the music business is a rarity, um, and I don't mean in terms of of you know cigar chomping um, you know old men who are cheating people. I mean there are so many people who are in in music or entertainment, but particularly music. I think for their egos and, and, and to satisfy their own ego and self-esteem issues. And, um, I, you know, I, I think that's a shame for them. There are also people who get in, who've gotten into the music business to make it rich. And I, I think that's a real shame for them because there are way easier ways to make a living. Mm -hmm. Um, but, um, I, I just think in a world that, ha that where there's a lot of plasticity, a lot of uh, phoniness, um, Dolly Parton is pretty real. Again, despite the 
external trappings. If you can't see past the external trappings, even if you don't like the music, but if you can't see that, then I, I feel bad for you. I don't mean yeah. you, Bernard. I don't feel bad for you, but <laughs> unless you need me to. <laughs> but ergo, the reason I changed my mind about uh, you know whether or not Dolly was the essence of cool, you know, after seeing you know those many interviews, it was pretty clear that she's the real deal. I think so, and I think that's authenticity is is part of uh, what makes somebody cool. Yeah. On that note, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, you're going to introduce me to somebody I've only recently heard about, and that's because of you, Keisha Fresh. We will take a break, and we'll be right back. Thanks for tuning in to The Essence of Cool. As an independent podcast, we rely wholly and completely on support of listeners like you. If you like what you hear, please help keep us on the air and throw a few bucks in our electronic tip jar. You can find it on the front page of our website, theessenceofcool.com. We truly appreciate your help. Now let's get back to the show. We're back with Blair Packham. And we're going to talk about somebody who was brand new to me, and her name is Keisha, Fre- Keisha Fresh. You introduced me to her um, a couple of days ago. In fact, uh, we've booked her to come on the show to talk uh, in a week or so, which will be fascinating. Um, but she is she's a rapper. She's in hip-hop. Uh, I know nothing about hip-hop. How did she capture your attention? What was it? Where did you come across her? I teach songwriting at Seneca College in Toronto, and um, the students are all between the ages of 18, usually between the ages of 18 and 20. Um, there's a, there's always a, a segment of the class that, uh, that are into hip-hop, that, that are rappers. Um, and uh, so I've had to adapt my teaching. I believe that good writing is good writing, you know, whether it's, whether it's in prose form or poetry or, or songwriting and whatever the genre. I, I really believe I could write a, a good country lyric, maybe not a great one. I could write a good pop lyric. I could write a, I could write a good rap. And that's because of the exposure that my students gave to me uh, uh, to rap. Um, you know, I inevitably, I had to sort of do a little research basically, and I had to feel like I could talk confidently about it and make a point for the fact that I'm mostly teaching them about, you know, non, uh, rap, non hip hop style songwriting, but it still is applicable. And one of my students one year, uh, in maybe 2012, I think was Keisha Fresh. Okay. And she uh, she was an excellent student. She was a rapper with very little exposure to other music, in my opinion. Anyway, I think she might put it differently, but uh, in my opinion, she was she only knew a little bit about. Other, it's like she was immersed in hip hop, and she was a rapper. Um, uh, and she was not only a, a, a really good artist, but she was a really good student. Now. Being a really good student in a songwriting course has no bearing on whether you'll be successful or not um, in in the real world. Um, but she happens to possess, you know, both qualities. Um, she was a really good student in that she was attentive. She soaked it up. Um, she could apply what she needed, and she left behind the rest of the stuff, and that's fine. Um, and um, 
I just followed what was going on with her. She'd already had a significant career before showing up at Seneca, and she'd actually been ripped off. And uh, she'll tell you all about the, those times, dark days. But so she here is a student who, even though she was like 22, I think, so slightly older than the rest of the class, she was, or maybe even 21, she was... Um, she was a, a veteran, and she knew lots of stuff. And it wasn't just about hip-hop, even though musically maybe it was. So, I don't know, she had a lot to offer. She got great marks. And then about, I don't know, three or four years later, I asked her if she would consider coming to do a guest lecture. Because I wanted a guest lecturer for my students who wasn't an old white guy like me. Right. And I just felt like it was really important Um no matter what kind of music they're in into, to have someone's point of view, I think having veterans in there is great. And I think me, you know, I'm a veteran, so I have lots to offer. But, but you also need somebody who's been in the trenches, who is closer to your age. I think, and and Keisha did that, and she's so good at it. She's really good at at presenting uh, her story and talking about how it's relevant to other people's lives. And because of that connection, did that send you out to try to discover hip-hop in your own way, to, to learn about it a little? Yeah, I mean, to a degree. It wasn't specifically because of, of Keisha, but because of the students in my class. I mean, you know, you made a joke out of, you saw straight out of Compton, but it doesn't make sense. <laughs> um, you know, I've, I've seen, um, uh, now I'm forgetting what it's called, uh, the Banger Films documentary, uh, hip hop uh, explosion. Uh, I can't remember what it's called. It's on Netflix though, and uh, so I've seen that. But it doesn't make me an expert on hip hop. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just started paying attention. You know, I he, here's the thing. I'm a bit of a I'm a, I'm what Craig Northey from the Odds, that mm-hmm. fantastic Vancouver band. He what he would call a low level rebel. Um, <laughs> in in the song, um, uh, uh, um, someone who's cool. He says, I'm a low-level rebel. I jaywalk to beat the devil. <laughs> and uh, that's kind of like me. So if if everybody around me is an old white guy, like if those are all my friends, and they don't know anything about hip-hop, I want to be different. Yeah. Um, if they think that, I don't know, if my, all my friends think that, um, I don't know, overstuffed sofas are, are, are comfy and cozy, then I want a, you know, Le Corbusier lounger and uh, in all angles and, and uh, <laughs> you know, and hyper-modern and so forth. So, right. you know, I, I, I don't know. It's an ego thing, I'm sure. But, um, yeah, it makes me want to be different. So I wanted, I didn't want to be that guy my age. So many of my friends would say, yeah, I like everything but country and hip hop, or I like everything but rap and country, you know, and, or just, I like everything but rap. And I would think, well, why, why is that? Like, especially lyricists, like, you know, it's, it's, it's lyric driven. And it's so pervasive. My daughter, Court, introduces me to hip-hop every now and again. Uh, and I question, because it's so prevalent, is it important for us old white guys to pay attention, to learn something about it? Not that we have to be you know, obsessed about it or anything, but is it important for us to learn something about that generation or, or that culture? I think in the world we live in right now, where, you know, uh, there's such divides amongst, it's not just, you know, left and right, there are divides within those groups as well. And um, a lot of of talking down, you know, people who are transphobic, uh, talking to people who are, this is politically incorrect, but uh, who are perhaps hypersensitive about, you know, terminology and so forth, because 
because other people don't know they're uneducated i think it i think it falls on the shoulders of people to learn about stuff like pronouns and 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 uh, you know and transgender lives and so forth but also other cultures particularly if their cultures as you say it's hip hop is so per- pervasive it's right under our noses you know right. Why not learn more about it? It doesn't mean you have to go out and, you know, I don't know, God forbid, buy a Snoop Dogg. You know, <laughs> like, I don't think he's the exemplar of, of rap and hip-hop, by the way. So Right. <laughs> um, but you know what I'm saying? Yes. Yeah. The short answer is yes. You know, at least to be able to speak on it with some authority um, yeah. and understand. And, tr- and all with an ear to being or an eye to being um, empathetic to other people's lives and experience. Yeah. No, agreed. Um, just back to Keisha, I, I read a magazine article online, and I think it was Complex Canada is the website, uh, and they called her a legend in the making. Now, those are some pretty weighty words. Why are they deserved, do you think? Well, she not only is a great rapper who tells stories through her raps and and they're and they're not i mean her the song she released when she was 16 her debut hollywood fresh um it's a braggart song you know the way many rap songs are about you know how you know they've got more going on than you and more money and you know more crystal and you know and bigger cars and so forth it's 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 that kind of song it's in that world but she doesn't really do that now and thank goodness, you know, because she's considerably older and uh, it'd be weird if you're doing the same thing you did when you were 16. <laughs> but she uh, she tackles bigger subjects. She's really eloquent. She's really fair minded. She considers, you know, uh, many sides of a of a situation. Um, I don't know. I, I, I think that, you know, aside from those great human qualities, She's really talented and a hard worker. She's a real, real hard worker. And she's also a person who says yes to opportunities. And I think the kind of person who does that, I think David Bowie was a guy who said yes to opportunities. Yeah. Um, You know, something comes along and it may not fit exactly what you were thinking of in that moment. But, you, you know, you think it over briefly and you go, yes, I'll do that. Because, you know, you don't know what will happen. Sometimes, you know, I joined the Navy. Um, I'm joking, but for, <laughs> for three days in, in, uh, 2018 and oh. <laughs> yeah, I had the opportunity to go as a, um, I could, because I had a radio show at the time and, and, uh, they, they were doing as a PR exercise, they have a program where they invite people on the, on Canadian Navy warships to join them for a few days and to, to sail. So we sailed from San Francisco to, uh, Victoria and, um, and I got my my buddy Paul Myers on board, um, and he apparently he's joining you uh, for another sure. for a chat like this. Yeah, he he is. Yeah. So anyway, he he and I had the greatest time. But would we go back? No. Would we join the Navy ourselves? No, never. <laughs> not not because uh, we don't think it's a fine and you know lovely institution and so forth, but because it wasn't that pleasant for us. But we did say yes because who could turn that down? Like right. you know, you got to say yes to stuff. And um, so anyway, Keisha does that. Um, she's super talented. She's always uh, trying to keep her writing fresh. And and uh, I don't know. I I think she's ambitious. I think the combo is pretty deadly. I said no to um, rap and hip hop for quite a long time. 
but I did. I have started to listen to uh, uh, bits and pieces here and there, and I uh, fully admit I listened through um, a number of uh, the songs on Keisha's uh, latest. I guess it's her latest called Field Trip, uh, released yeah. last year. Yeah, yeah. and it, it was it was really interesting. I mean, first of all, I just kudos to 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 the hip hop generation for creating some of the most incredible beats yeah. ever, yeah. Um, which you know really drives me because um, everybody loves a good beat but the i was i was taken aback because and and i guess like you know most other rap artists she's very clear and decisive about what she wants to get across the she doesn't mince words no and so and sometimes she's talking about very troublesome scenes in her life and i commend her for being able to um convey you know great detail about you know one's life especially when it's you know difficult material um but i found it really gritty and um i I guess for that reason i find it for me as an old white guy troublesome and I, but then I, I think about all of the all of the music that I listened to in my youth. You know, I listened to the Pistols and to the Ramones and to the the, the Clash, and there was a lot of really gritty material in those too. And so, what makes that any different, really? Yeah, I mean, arguably, the you know the grittiness of hip hop, arguably, because it's on a case by case basis, it's hard to generalize, but right. is grittier than anything the pistols or the clash or any any of those guys went through and you know that i mean one of the reasons is and it's a it's a very real thing white privilege i mean yeah you know the fact that that you know um we're able to sort of you know say wow that's pretty gritty when it's other people's lived experiences um is you know is a is a sign of our, our of our privilege that we don't have to live that now Keisha I think you know she has privilege as well um, she has a family that loves her enormously and she has lots of friends and uh, uh, you know and fans who love her enormously and lots of people don't have that you know right. um, she also has had the benefit of a very supportive family who helped her actually they helped her into her sticky situation that she had when she was 16 with the music business but they also helped her in you know through school and they support her at her shows and stuff, you know, uh, she's, you know, she also has a certain amount of privilege, but there's no denying that what, you know, you and I have uh, at our, in our positions in life is, is a few steps beyond that. And, and I just think that, again, learning about this stuff, checking it out and taking it seriously and not dismissing it, I think, I think dismissing it is a sign of privilege. I think um, taking it in, again, it doesn't have to become your favorite music it doesn't in any way you don't even have to like it but checking it out means you are not cutting off an entire swath of humanity dismissing them with, and i'm not saying this about you bernard but people who dismiss it with a wave of the hand well i don't like rap you know it's like okay you're dismissing an entire genre and also the music the favorite music of an entire group of people mm-hmm. um and and it just seems it just seems wrong to me so you know, I, again, uh, it's not my favorite form of music. I like lots of music more than I like rap, but I have a few favorite rap songs. Yeah. 
My my wife and I had a similar conversation about the Trump generation when he was elected uh, back in 2016. And uh, she was going on and on about, you know, what's with these people? Why would they choose such a blah, blah, blah? And, uh, you know, we've got we've to fight against them. And I thought, you know, well, maybe it's time we stopped fighting and starting ask, started asking questions. And I think maybe the, similar, uh, the, the same could be said for, for hip hop, uh, that, you know, us old white guys and so many other uh, generations and, and many other people who do, as you say, dismiss you know, genres like country and rap, maybe take a listen and ask a few questions. I think that's I, I think that that's a good idea. Um, there's a fantastic country song um, by Don Williams. I think it was a hit in well written by two other guys I think. But Don Williams had the hit with it, and uh, um, I think it was 1974. And it's called "Good Old Boys Like Me," and it actually asks the question. It paints the picture of a of a, a southern, a sophisticated but still Southern redneckish kind of guy, but sophisticated, well-read. It makes a point that the guy is well-read and cultured. And, uh, and yet in the chorus, in the chorus, it, it, you know, I can still smell this. Uh, I can still hear the soft summer breeze in the, in the soft summer wind in the, in the live Oak trees. And he, and, and those Williams boys, they still mean a lot to me, Hank in Tennessee. Um, I guess we're going to be what we're going to be. Uh, but what do you do with good old boys like me? And and that's to me so relevant right now because, yeah, you know the the those people exist and they're real and you can't just you know act like they're all Jethro Bodine and you know the hillbillies right. or whatever, you know because they're not they're people with jobs and families and houses and dogs and cats and and, and kids and 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 you know and concerns they need to make a living as well and you know they're real people even though we think and I when I say we I'm making presumption here because you know I don't know for sure but maybe we think that they're making the wrong choice politically maybe we think that you know I mean I'm not talking about the Nazis I'm not talking about the white supremacists right. we don't have to understand them Right. <laughs> you know, really, as far as I'm concerned, you know, that's, yeah. fun. you know, that's not, yeah. But, oh, but I'm, I'm talking about the, the regular people. Now, there are plenty of regular people who voted for Donald Trump who didn't, who never accepted that he was, a, you know, a white supremacist or clearly leaning that way. And to me, to them, I think, oh, God, that's a mountain to climb to figure that one out, how to deal with those people. But I don't blame them the same way as I would blame the people who, you know, walk around with actual swastikas on flags. Right. Of course. Anyway. But it's the, it's the, yeah, the, the former group of people who I would like to just reach out and say, what's going on in your life and why do you choose this path? You know, I just want to find out and maybe we can open up a dialogue. Right. Anyways, yeah. um, we'll save that for an, another conversation. Let's get back to Keisha. And I'm thinking about, you know, like rock and like country the hip-hop uh genre is fairly male dominated what is it like for uh, a woman like keisha to make her way in such a male-dominated world especially in that kind of culture i bet it's really difficult um you know i don't i don't have any insights from her side of the uh, of the of the gender gender gap i guess uh um i don't know in other words um but i can only imagine that it would be really difficult um 
you know, she was taken advantage of in a business way uh, as a teenager by a, by various music business people. Um, and I can't help but think that there was some uh, sexism involved in that, you know, taking advantage and ageism as well, taking advantage. And, but, but her, you know, her mother and her aunt got involved in the, uh, uh, in that situation. And I, I can't imagine that the, you know, the guy, the manager guy, uh, wasn't operating under the assumption that he could take advantage of these people because they're women. Yeah. Um, I want to wrap up this segment and talk, uh, circle back to our, our theme, and that is the essence of cool. What is it about Keisha Fresh specifically that is the essence of cool? She um, is now, she's unflappable. She is never ruffled. Um, she puts her head down and she tries stuff. Um, musically, but also in terms of other businesses. She's had a clothing line. She now has a makeup line um, that she sells. Um, she um, did a session um, a few years ago with a group of uh, other women rappers who she'd never met before. And at the end of the session, things had gone so well, one of them said, we should make a group. And she just said, yes. And she did it. Wow. And I think that's totally cool. Um, that group, by the way, was called the Sorority, and they um, they kicked butt. They were they they they've uh, broken up now, unfortunately. But they uh, got fans all across the country. Uh, one of their members went on to win the Polaris Prize with her solo record after the Sorority, and and uh, they're just uh, they're fantastic. Their videos are available uh, on YouTube, and they're they're great. And it's an all woman rap group, so that kind of answers your question in a way. Uh, you know, sisterhood, I think, helps. Yeah. yeah, indeed. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about somebody I know a little bit about, but I'm hoping you're going to fill in some of the blanks for me, um, Steve Earle. So stick with us. We'll be back on the flip side. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you liked and even what you didn't like. Have you got a show or guest idea? Well, drop us a line. Our email addy is info at theessenceofcool.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Now let's get back to the show. We're back with Blair Packham, and uh, we've talked about two really interesting people, uh, Dolly Parton and Keisha Fresh, and we're about to talk about uh, a fella I know a little bit about, but I'm hoping, as I said before, you'll fill in some of the blanks. Steve Earle. What what was your introduction to Steve? Oh, that's a really good question. I, I'm not sure I remember. Uh, it might have been... Uh, was it pre-Copperhead Road? or before? Yeah, definitely pre-Copperhead Road. It was, uh, but I can't really remember. Uh, Guitar Town, I think it was called. Um, I think it was his first record out of Nashville. That's right. And... Uh, yeah, I I just I heard the some a couple of the songs on on that record killed me, and uh, always have my ear open for songs. You know, our job as songwriters, I think, is to move people. That's our job. It's not to tell our life story. It's not to uh, make a million dollars. Clearly, I'm not doing my job if that's the case. Um, <laughs> but but it's to move people. It's make people feel things. And uh, and anytime a songwriter does that, I'm I'm all over it. So was it. I mean, is it his compositions? Is it his voice? Is it his lyrics? Is it a combination of all three? What is it that, that captures you? It's a combination of all three, but I have to say his voice, 
Um, his voice, his his voice bugs me. Um, not the singing aspect, but the accent part of it, because he has a very thick sort of uh, southern accent. Mm. Uh, it's funny because he's an actor as well as a musician, and and he was in a, a, a great series by David Simon called Treme, about uh, post Katrina New Orleans, and it right. was an HBO show. Really great show, although jokes have been made that nothing ever happens in it, which is <laughs> entirely true. But it's a sort of a slice of life kind of show. Anyway, he right. was in it, and uh, he was also in The Wire, David Simon's uh, you know groundbreaking show, right. um, and um, and in Treme. Oh, I, this is a spoiler. Oh, boy. In Treme, he's suddenly not in the show anymore. Let's put it that way. And his sister uh, says, well, nobody ever, you know, you know, that fake accent, nobody ever liked that anyway. And, <laughs> and the person talking to her says, what? And she says, well, he was from Colorado. That All that West Texas stuff, that's just, that's just bullshit. And, uh, now, you know, that's not really true in Steve Earle's case, but uh, he does put it on. He slathers it on. He's from West Texas, but he slathers on the accent. And so that's the part of the, of the equation that I'm not as crazy about. His his lyrics are generally fantastic in that they, they move me, and they also often reveal something that I didn't know before. Um, and his and his melodies uh, support the, those lyrics. So I, I guess lyric-driven first, melodies next, and probably... West Texas accent third. His is one that uh, I, I really quite enjoy, and I don't know why. Um, actually, going to be talking to your buddy, Paul, Paul Myers, um, in a little while, and he's going to talk to me about um, a woman by the name of Judy Sill, who, again, is somebody that is brand new to me. Um, and she has a, a similar kind of accent, but in her case, I did kind of find it uh, a bit of a uh, off-putting. I, I think, yeah, Judy Sill is fantastic, but I think you wouldn't be alone in that. Um, uh, I, I think it's one of the reasons for her, her her lack of mainstream success was because of, of the way she sang. Um, now, Paul may make a fantastic argument for why that's just fine, and, right. and I may agree with him. But, uh, yeah, accents sometimes really bother me. And, you know, I don't like the singer-songwriter accent that many young women affect right now. Oh, yeah, I know. You know uh, <laughs> it's just... I'm with you. Is I'm the base. You know, I like I liked it when I first started hearing it, but now it's so overdone that it really does put me off. There's a great clip on YouTube um, called "How to Hip Sing," and a, a young woman shows how to do it, and, right. and it's funny. It's really funny. <laughs> now to get back to Steve, uh, he starts out. As a songwriter, he's actually writing for publishing companies for the first five years before he ever puts out an album. Is that right? Yeah, apparently. I mean, uh, he was heavily influenced by uh, by Towns Van Zant, um, yeah. the legendary Texas songwriter, and uh, and Guy Clark, another legendary Texas songwriter, um, and. Um, so I imagine, and he was also, uh, Steve Earle was not the sort of typical, even as a young man, he was sort of not a typical um, good-looking, like, you know, potential country star kind of guy. Like, it didn't look like he just came off the farm, uh, you know, and uh, in his but in shiny boots or whatever. Um, so I think that he probably thought that was, you know, uh, that was his career. Or it's possible that it was this always meant to be a stepping stone. I don't know. But, um, yeah, he was a songwriter first. Sometimes he's referred to as an alternative country singer. Sometimes they refer to him as country rock. Um, but he started out 
country and it seems to that seems to be a thread throughout his his albums although he does tend to jump all over the place in terms of uh, his styles but is was country his intended path do you think yeah i do i mean i, mean, I think that he, the kind of country he likes is more singer songwriter oriented country and i think more old country and both of those things are now considered alt country because they're not they don't sound like like you know if you're not into country music it probably all sounds the same you know like it's hard to you know it's like anything if you're not that familiar with it um you're going to think you you know if you if you don't know the different accents a parisian accent from uh you know one from nice in in france you you're not you know it'll all sound like french to you you know Mm -hmm. um but but i think in in the case of country music um you know, somebody can be into bluegrass, and a mainstream country or, or country fan won't like that at all. Right. Um, you know, so, and somebody can be into, into Patsy Cline. Patsy Cline is the least fashionable kind of country music uh, amongst uh, people in Nashville, but people in Toronto love that old time country music. They always have in Toronto. You know, the the love for Hank Williams and 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 that kind of country music, um, which is long gone in Nashville, uh, but the the love for that in Toronto is really strong. I mean, hence bands like Blue Rodeo. Uh, right. You know, and, and and other alt country bands, Rang Tango from back in the day. There were there were bands that that did that kind of more basic, um, rootsier, uh, earthier kind of country music, and uh, uh, nothing like the Nashville stuff. And Steve Earle is more in that in that department. He's not a mainstream country artist at all. Mm-hmm. In fact, he lives in New York City most of the time. So, you know, he's more of a country politan kind of guy. I watched. Um a documentary, or at least the first half of a documentary, called The Hard Way, I guess after his album, um, where there's a lot of interview section with him, and uh, it sounded a little like he was always kind of wrestling with the the country elite, like they didn't really want them in, uh, they didn't want him in their club. Yes, I would say that's true. Um, but, you know, that was true of, of uh, Waylon Jennings. You know, again, non-country oh. people would think, well, Waylon Jennings, he's, he exemplifies country. But right. he didn't. He never actually did. He was always considered an outlaw. And there was a whole movement of, of music, including... including uh, um, oh, Willie Nelson. Willie Nelson, including <laughs> Willie Nelson, of all people. He wasn't considered country enough either. Really? Uh, yeah. The, the, the country music establishment is... is uh, even to this day, maybe more so, I don't know. Uh, but they've historically been uh, not very open to outsiders and not very open to things outside what they want right now. And, I mean, I've been told by writers who went down to Nashville, they had, you know, they brought three or four songs with them and then they were going to have writing dates with other songwriters. Right. And uh, they were told when they brought up an idea that had love in the title, oh, no, we're not doing love uh, titles right now. We're, oh you know, we don't, because, uh, you know, uh, nobody's taken those, so we're, we're not going to do that. You know, have you got anything with dance in it? Because dance is going over big right now, you know. <laughs> and and it's, it's that much of a, the, the established national thing is, can be that much of a factory. Right. Well, I have to tell you that the music that seems to come out of Nashville now seems to be pop with a twang. Yeah, I would say it's, uh, it's kind of like... And there's there's a, a good bit of uh, hip hop uh, influence as well, but right? It's uh, it's kind of like the Eagles with uh, maybe with a, a little bit of, uh, of a hip hop sort of beat. Um, it's like country rock from the '70s in a way. Right, right. Now, when I first the first thing I heard um, was Copperhead Road. Yeah, 
uh, like you know millions and millions of others. And to me, that sounded like a country song with balls. But uh, I look at the charts, and it didn't seem to do anything on the country charts. It really only made headway on sort of the main rock charts. Yeah. And, and and the ironic thing is, all the rock people heard it and was like, what's this country shit? You know? That's right. <laughs> and, and, uh, but, but, you know, they may have liked it, but they thought of it as country, for sure. But the country right. people didn't. And, and this has been true all along. You know, um, some of my favorite country artists are not well-liked in Nashville. Mm. So you had mentioned earlier that um, he was... Um, quite taken by Towns Van Zandt. Yeah. And uh, I guess at some point, he Towns became a bit of a mentor for him as well. Um, what was it about Towns' approach to music that affected him so much, do you think? I, I, I'm not sure that I can speak authoritatively on that. Um, I mean... Um, do you see similarities between their... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. definitely. I mean, uh, well, there's a few things, actually. Towns was a bit of a tragic figure. Um, and I think that's what some people love about him. And I, and I, I hate that. I personally hate when people romanticize other people's addictions and, um, you know, and foibles and so forth and, and say, you know, well, he was a wife beater, but he sure could write a song, you know, or, you know, he was, he was addicted to cocaine, but you know, man, I love that. You know, I like it's fine to love the the art. It's totally fine to love the art, uh, I think. Um, but to romanticize somebody else's misfortune. Um, Towns Van Zandt uh, was a bit of a tragic figure. He was depressed. He never, never had the success that he or other people thought that he should have. He's really a sort of a, a, a secondary figure. Um, you know, he only wrote a few songs that really got heard by a, the wide, wider public. Um, Poncho and Lefty is is probably the biggest one, mm-hmm. um, which was done by the Highwaymen, I believe. Uh, which was uh, who was that? That was uh, Waylon Jennings. Uh, anyway, they, the point is that it was it it was you know done by other people, and mm-hmm. and he heard and he was heard that way. I think Steve Earle would have been drawn to that. Would have been drawn to the introspection. Would have been drawn to the grittiness and the authenticity. Steve Earle himself went on to have a major problem with drug addiction, um, and uh, and I think uh, well, who knows? Really, uh, I don't. I can't speak for him, but I wonder if at least the introduction of the drugs uh, into his life would would have been you know because of seeing that well, Towns did it, and he's a great songwriter. <laughs> you know, you can you can rationalize things if you admire somebody. Right. He was, so in this same documentary, um, uh, this is, I think, pretty much verbatim. Uh, So he was describing uh, touring in Australia. And he said, instead of seeing sort of beaches and desert and flora and fauna, all he saw were prostitutes, drugs, and drug users. <laughs> so, but, so it begs the question, you know, why are so many of our music icons drug addicts? What is it about? Is it the lifestyle? Is it that it's so uh, easy to access drugs? Is it because they've lived such tortured lives? What What is it? I think it's a combination of all of those things. I think the lifestyle, you know, when I was on the road uh, in the 80s with my old band, The Jitters, um, you know, we, we toured a lot and um, I was rarely without a beer, um, right. certainly in the evening. I, you know, I have, I have quite a bit of self-control. I like beer a lot, but I ha- have enough self-control that, you know, in the evening I might have too many, but I wouldn't have any in the daytime. But the fact is, it's all, it's all there. If I was home, 
or, you know, if I was working in an office or something like that, I wouldn't be drinking all day in the office, you know? Right, right. Uh, so I do think it's the exposure. Um, I've been around musicians uh, who are known to have drug ha- habits, and um, the drug dealers descend. Um, I played a gig with somebody who I'm, I'm not going to name, but they, uh, you know, every heroin dealer in town was there. Steve Earle told me himself that when he would come to town, uh, two two dealers would come to his shows in addition to the fans. The heroin dealers, knowing that he was a likely mark, and and old vintage guitar dealers because <laughs> they knew that in order to buy some junk, he was willing to sell oh, at a low no. price. Yes, he oh. said he ended up selling all, every single guitar he had except some old Yamaha. Oh. Uh, yeah, and that was before he went to jail. So, um, and I, unlike a lot of people, I don't hear those stories of his his and go, oh, I love him even more now. In fact, I think, oh, that's really too bad. You know, like imagine the great songs he could have been writing if he wasn't in jail. I I had a cab driver once who said about the songwriter, John Hyatt, John Hyatt song came on the radio and I said, oh man, I love this guy. And the cab driver said, yeah, that, that's what, that's what years of, uh, of heroin addiction and methadone addiction will get you. And I said, you think so? I'm curious about what he might have done if he'd been sober. And the guy said, yeah. he would have been shit. And, and I said, oh. I, I don't think so. Like, why, you know. But the other thing you said, there's another thing you said that's really important. I do think that real songwriters, and when I say real songwriters, I'm being uh, chauvinistic, I suppose. Uh, not chauvinistic in the male-female sense, but I'm being chauvinistic in terms of, uh, you know, we songwriters versus the rest of the world. Right. Um, I think that real songwriters feel maybe not more, but feel a lot. Yeah. And, 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 and it's hard, (laughs) you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not excusing drug addiction. I'm not excusing anything. I'm just saying that, you know, songwriters are often neurotic. That's, that's what the word neurotic means. You're, you're feeling your, you're feeling, you know, the, the feelings. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, and, and so I think that, you know, drugs and alcohol go a long way to numbing that. And if you need the, those things numbed, I suppose, you know, in my case, I like to eat chocolate bars. It's, it's not, it's not good. Um, thankfully it hasn't killed me yet. One of the things that came out in the documentary is, um, that, uh, Steve really does like to challenge himself, uh, which I think is just a, a, a wonderful, characteristic um i mean bowie did the same thing iggy does the same thing um you know most of our icons i think that's you know the way they they they're able to explore so much is they like to challenge themselves and jump into new territory without even thinking just to see what happens um he was so in the documentary he's uh, tending to his uh, he has a series of bonsai trees and uh, he said uh, something about that he he can't st- sit still, but in bonsai sometimes the only thing you can do is sit and do nothing. So he's really challenging challenging himself. I'm assuming he does the same in his music. Yeah, I would say so. Although it's not in the obvious way, which would be uh, jumping genres. Um, right. He he doesn't tend to do that. Uh, I mean, he, he you know again to a purist, he, he could be said to do that because he he certainly stretches the boundaries of of roots music, mm-hmm. but he's not suddenly doing like you know um, African township music or suddenly doing uh, calypso or something like that. He he. Right. 
he stays within the roots boundaries. But it, there might be some, some songs might be more bluesy, some songs might be more country bluegrassy. But uh, he definitely pushes himself in terms of lyrical subject matter. Mm-hmm. He'll he'll write about all kinds of things and and uh, and and he pushes himself. Um, uh, you know, I, I, well here's here's an example. His son. Who was named Justin Towns Earl? So he was he was named after Towns Van Zant. Um, right. Passed away on August twentieth uh, this yeah. this year of um, of uh, you know complications from drugs. Um, yeah. Thirty nine years old. Steve yeah. Earl, I can only imagine, was you know devastated. He's a guy who feels a lot, mm-hmm. and and he threw himself right away, almost right away, into making a, a record um, of of JT's songs. Um, and, uh, and, and all the, all the, uh, proceeds are going to go to a charity, um, actually to, to JT's, uh, uh, daughter actually. And but what, a, what a wonderful way to start on the healing process. Eh? Yeah, exactly. I mean, some would say it's denial. Um, and some might, you know, Steve Roll himself would say, yeah, that's a possibility. I'm pretty sure he'd agree that's a possibility, but, um, but I think it's, it's productive and it's constructive. Um, and, uh, and I, I think that, I don't know, in a way that almost exemplifies who the guy is in terms of being driven. I mean, you know, if the question is, why is he cool? And I guess that's the overarching question mm-hmm. is, um, he, first of all, he's very articulate about who he is and he's done a lot of exploration into who he is given, given his stints in jail and, and being drug addicted and, and reaching the bottom uh, of his life, um, and of his fortunes. And, uh, uh, and he's come back with new knowledge. He isn't a guy who sort of delved deep and then just gave up. He, you know, or shrugged his shoulders, huh? That's weird. You know, he, he came back with new knowledge and, and, and then applied that to new behavior. Right. And, and I don't know, I find him extremely admirable. And, and it, in a way, it comes down to this one expression that he uses about songwriting. Songwriting, as you know, for me, is an obsession. And I teach songwriting. I run workshops about it. And I, and I write songs. And I examine the art and craft of songwriting. And he says, songwriting is empathy. What that means is nobody actually cares about how you feel. <laughs> right. <laughs> they care about how you feel as it relates to them. To them. Yeah. Right. Now, I'm, I'm talking about songwriting. I mean, I assume there are people who care about how you feel, Bernard. But, <laughs> but, but when it comes to songwriting, people really, like, when a song moves them, even if it's your story, your intensely personal story, if it moves them, they want to hear it again. And they want, they want more. Um, because that's, that's what we do as songwriters. Too many songwriters and certainly too many of my students at Seneca, uh, believe that songwriting is, uh, merely self-expression. I say merely because I think it's so much more than that. It's self, it's self-expression with the, with the end goal of, of connecting with other human beings. Right. And and I think too many people forget that. And the fact that Steve Earle can identify that and can and and make it a make it a feature of his songwriting to me makes him immensely cool. Right. What would you say is his biggest contribution to music? That's a good question. You know, it's funny. You know, during the great um, iPod scare of the uh, early two thousands, uh, and I'm joking. I got an iPod <laughs> and I uh, began. Um, uh, loading up my CDs and throwing them away because I didn't want to. I, I'm 
I have a fair collection of possessions, but I don't want to. I aspire to having very few. Yeah. And, uh, and I, you know, I'm working towards that. But so I decided I wasn't, I'm not going to fetishize CDs because music is, songs exist in the air. They exist in your brain. They don't have to be, you know, tied to a particular physical format. Mm-hmm. Um, when I did, when I went through my CDs, I noticed that I had more Steve Earle CDs than I had Beatle CDs. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> and I could name you a song or two or five off of each of those CDs that has moved me and and in some ways changed my life. Um, but wow. the biggest single one, I don't, I don't know. You know, um, I mean, for me, the biggest single contribution to music is is that thing I quoted: songwriting is empathy. Yeah. The recognition of that and the the sort of um, codifying of that into an expression that that whole idea into those three words songwriting is empathy i think it's it's become it's really useful for me as a teacher yeah um and i think that it's i think it's valuable you know for not just the songwriters but the audience to remember that as well yeah well put speaking of that myriad of uh, uh cds that you once had and now exist on your ipod only um what's the one steve earl album you would somebody for somebody who has never heard steve perish the thought what one album would you recommend they listen to oh god honestly i don't know that i, I can narrow it down to a couple he's got so many i don't even know how many and i don't have them all by any means uh, right but um uh, let's see um the uh, one that I, I don't, I'm not sure it's the best introduction to Steve Earle. Maybe the best introduction to Steve Earle is is Copperhead Road. I don't know because it's it, you know it's a big rock record, but it really sounds 80s to me now. It's got these big drums on it, and it, I don't know. Sonically, <laughs> it might put somebody off, but yeah. um, Transcendental Blues is an album from about I don't know 2004, something like that. Okay, and. Um, it's like the Beatles with a southern accent. Um, he uses a lot of analog studio tricks that the Beatles would have used um, and in making these soundscapes on top of these catchy, deceptively simple songs. Uh, I don't know. I, I love that. I love that album, um, Transcendental Blues. Now it's running through my head. Um, and, and, on, and I don't know. There was one after that. I, I don't know if the album was called Jerusalem, but that's one of the songs. It's a fantastic song. And it's, a, it's like an anthem for peace. Um, and it never says, like, war is bad. Like, I always think, I always love these, you know, like Eve of Destruction, these very literal yeah. peace songs i don't know but but uh yeah jerusalem hell of a song it's about peace in the middle east specifically but peace in general yeah it's funny because uh, he did make a big impact on me in the 80s particularly with copperhead road and i remember thinking to myself i've really got to dive into his uh, his back catalog and discover more i never did but i th- think after this conversation i will be uh diving into his collection to to learn more because he is a fascinating character and i do love his uh, i do love his voice but i love his writing as well well i you know i love his voice too it's just the accent i it's one of those things that i think would put off uh, non-fans people who are who are new to to him and uh right. or you know some people might love it i don't know but for me it's it sounds a bit overwrought sometimes but I, you know, I've had the pleasure of interviewing him a couple of times, and um, he uh, he's a very eloquent guy, and 
Uh, he doesn't really speak in quite as much of a drawl as he seems. Um, to me, that's always a clue. I always, yeah. I always think, really, you're putting that on. But, uh, but man, am I ever like? And he, and he's a guy who just gets it done. And I yeah. and I love that. You know, yeah. as I'm a ditherer. I dither. I second guess and I dither. And you got to admire somebody who just goes and 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 I don't know if you can edit this out. Who just goes and fucking does it. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's funny because um, uh, every now and again I have a conversation with uh, Selena Martin, who used to live uh, around where I live these days, and we once had uh, went out for uh, a couple of beers, and I was asking because I was really fascinated about her uh, her process. Yeah, but uh, you know the fact that she often takes a year or two years to complete a song. <laughs> I'm I'm the kind of guy who wants to write it now. I don't want to wait. I want to get into it. I want to get it done so I can you know perish the thought of ever. <laughs> spending a year or two to finish writing a song. Oh, I, that, that's me. I'm and Selena and I are very alike in that way. I have ideas that I've been carrying around for 30 something years. Well, I have those ideas too, but if I get into a song and it's resonating, if it's humming, I want to finish the damn thing. Right? Well, and that's, they say, George Harrison always said, if you start something, finish it in the same, like try and finish it at the same time. And I think he's right. I, um, I'm just, uh, I'm just not able to do that. Okay. <laughs> That's your process. Yeah, yeah. I want to uh, I want to put a close on our conversation about Steve, and uh, we're nearing the end of the episode. And I can't thank you enough for coming on. It's been a delightful hour. Um, I want to end by playing my little game of cool, not cool. If you'll <laughs> bear with me, <laughs> I will happily. Okay, so I'm going to read out a, a couple of uh, names of artists, and you tell me whether you think they're cool or not, and if you want to back that up, please feel free. All right. Let's jump in with Bob Dylan. Cool or not cool? Cool. Yeah. Absolutely cool. A guy who didn't give a crap about what other people thought and just went ahead bravely and did it and was happy to, you know, sing in a way that was considered not musical. He didn't care. He That's the way he wanted to sing. And when he wanted to drop out of uh, from sight and stop touring, he did so for uh, I think it was six years. Just stopped touring and uh, and and put out a couple of records and and actually, uh, arguably, deliberately made a bad one in order to put people off his scent, basically. Yeah, yeah. I I remember the documentary uh, Robbie Robertson uh, put out uh, fairly recently, uh, Once for Brothers, and he's talking about being in uh, Bob's band or the band being their you know, his backup band, and uh, that first year or so where they were booed off the stage every night but he wouldn't give up no no it didn't phase him at all it actually phased levon helm uh, who was playing drums levon quit the band because he couldn't stand uh being uh, booed every night oh that's right yeah, yeah, yeah. so oh all right let's jump into our next one bob right. seeger that's a tough one i gotta say i think cool but uh then i don't know like bob seeger uh, I mean, Bob Dylan licensed some songs for commercials for the Bank of Montreal. I remember years ago, and mm -hmm. and so forth. But uh, but I, I always felt that was Bob Dylan's publisher. Whereas Bob Seger, I felt like he he licensed his actual masters. Like there were no Bob Dylan voices on commercials, um, but Bob Seger actually licensed uh, you know like a rock for wow. uh, for Chevrolet. I think truck, right. heavy trucks. Yeah. Um, and. I don't know. I don't know that, you know, lots of people that wouldn't bother them at all, but it kind of bugs me. So I, I don't know. Um, and 
I don't know, the sentiment of some of those songs, uh, those older songs, you know, Rock and Roll Never Forgets, it seems a bit pat uh, to me. So I, I don't know. I guess I'd have to fall on Not Cool. I kind of agree with you because I think, you know, talking about some of those songs, it seemed like he was trying too hard to please. Yes. You know? And that's one of the things we don't like about, like, when we think somebody's not cool. Because right. cool would be, well, I don't care. Do you like it? You know, good. You know, every artist cares. Bob Dylan cares. Everybody cares. But it's to the degree that it drives you. Right. The next one is, and I was I was going to, I was going to mention just the 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 band themselves, but I think I want to single out one of the members. I'm talking about the band, uh, but I'm singling out Garth Hudson. Oh, Garth is totally cool. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, he's cool, but he's an enigma. He's, uh, he, I think he's an enigma even to his former bandmates, the, the surviving ones anyway. Um, actually, is, there, is it only, uh, let's just see, Robbie. It, it's just Robbie and, and Garth at this point. Yeah, so, yeah. so I, I suspect, um, apparently they used to call him Head in the band because his head was so big. Um, <laughs> and uh, there are pictures of them all wearing hats um, yeah. and him not wearing a hat because they didn't have one in his size. Um, I remember. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are lots of pictures, I'm sure, with him in a hat too but his head was so big anyway uh but yeah uh an enigmatic guy who um uh, you know was a musical genius i would say um uh, certainly played stuff i don't understand and and yet it's beautiful and lovely so um cool did you play with him for a little bit no, I I played some gigs with Rick Danko. Actually. Oh right, yeah. right, right. Okay, but I, I it wasn't that I had it wasn't. I mean, I wasn't in Rick's band or anything like that. I played two gigs with Rick Danko, and and they were eye opening and life affirming and amazing, totally amazing. Yeah. And you played keyboards with them, right? Yeah, yeah. the The first one was really good, and the second one wasn't. The first one I had an acoustic piano, like an upright piano to play. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rick came over to me. I was at the sound check. I I was friends with Colin Linden who, uh, who was playing guitar with Rick and I was I had driven Colin to the gig which was in upstate New York and uh, stayed at Rick's house that night it was it was great it was one of a couple of times I stayed at Rick's place and um, uh, Rick came over to me I was noodling around on this piano just killing time because we uh, you know the gig the show wasn't for a little while and he, he came over and he said Blair play me a C chord and so I go, see, and he, and he goes, you're hired. <laughs> and, uh, next thing you know, and I'm not particularly a piano player. I got to tell right. you, especially then I'm a better piano player now, but yeah. especially then. So he was taking a big chance, but it was just, he was in the moment. Rick was, well, he, if you ask me if he was cool, I have a, I have a strong certainty that he was cool. You must have been nervous, nervous as hell for that first gig, right? Yeah, and and you know because of the band songs when he would play them, I can I can fake a lot of things on piano, right. um, but I you know I don't necessarily know intros and solos and so forth. So um, I think there's a piano intro for Stage Fright, uh, the band song, and Rick turned to me and he said Stage Fright, and I said uh huh, <laughs> and he said play it, and I said. Anytime you're ready, you know, yep, you start, and, you know, and, and then he just started playing and I was like, then I was in, you know, right? but right. I, didn't, I didn't really remember. I knew those songs, but not to play them, you know, yeah. so, yeah. Um, yeah, that's very cool. Okay. The Pogues. Oh, totally cool. 
Oh, the yeah. Pogues? Oh, my God. Yeah, Shane McGowan, anybody who can go through life with teeth like that. Uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and I don't know. I, yeah, absolutely. Plus the lyrics and the, and the vocal delivery, 100%. No, oh, yeah. no question. Yeah. Although I think he finally got implants. Didn't they do a reunion not too long ago? And I think I saw him with implants. I would like to see that. I haven't, I haven't <laughs> seen that, but I think, you're, I think you're right. I think I heard that, too. But, man, that would be funny to see. Yeah. <laughs> okay, the Ramones. Oh, completely cool. Oh my god. Yeah, these you're you're lob, you're lobbing softballs at this point. <laughs> you, know? Uh, you know, I mean if you said Jackson Brown, I might have a little problem even though I like Jackson Brown, but oh, I, I don't know. You know. but the Ramones of course, of course, you know. I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean their logo seems to have more uh fame than they do these days because you'll see it on people's t-shirts like sort of i would consider them wannabe t-shirts uh because actually i'm i'm wearing one right now <laughs> oh, okay. well were you i mean the graphic is fantastic but were you a fan back in the day huge and in fact i got yeah. to meet joey so. oh there you go yeah, yeah yeah i i mixed uh i mixed uh, the opening band for one of the shows in toronto and um, and met them all then, and then met them subsequently a couple of times in New York as well. Never yeah. knew them, but um, met them for sure. So. Uh, somebody you actually mentioned early on in the conversation, and that's John Prine. Oh, totally cool. Yeah. Well, he went through periods like we all do where he wasn't cool, but uh, right. yeah. One more before I let you go, and it's uh, somebody who's actually was a huge fan of John Prine as well, Gordon Lightfoot. That's a tough one. I would say he's cool. Um, certainly, yeah, I would say he's cool. Yeah, actually, I'll double down on that. I think he's totally... What, what made you question it before you... Well, uh, Gordon Lightfoot, to me, unlike the other singer-songwriters that we've talked about, like unlike Dylan or, um, or Steve Earle, um, mm-hmm. always seemed to be playing it safe uh, musically. Uh, in a Really? Really? Yeah, well, you know, the Gordon Lightfoot record from any era sounds like a Gordon Lightfoot record. Um, Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald didn't have a damn chorus. That's got to be groundbreaking. I don't know if it's groundbreaking, but it's, but yeah, it's adventurous for sure. Uh, and and it's a and and it is outside of his normal thing in that he didn't tend to write sort of historical ballads, you know, even though it was a thing that right. had just happened really. Um, and it's okay. a great song. Don't don't get me wrong. Somebody can be uncool and still be fantastic, you know. Agreed. Yeah. Um, I you know I, I I just wonder. I just I don't know when I think of cool. I don't know. I thought, uh, I, you know, I don't know. And Gord's, Gord's alive and well, and he's kicking. He's he's doing a concert from the Elma Combo uh, in the next little while, and um, like an online concert. And uh, I have immense respect for him as a songwriter. So I, I sort of hate to damn him with the uncool thing. Um, I think that there was just times in his life when I would have thought, eh, I don't know, or maybe times in my life. Not sure what it is. Um, yeah, he's cool. <laughs> you don't think he was the type of guy to really not give a shit about what fans or critics thought? He was just going to do what he was going to do? From what I understand, um, he he's on the spectrum um, to a degree. So I'm not sure he'd be able to care what fans think i think he needs to do what he does i think that he needs to and 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 you know he he has a gift but in addition to the gift i think he works really hard at it um yeah and i think that you know if you made him unable to write or play or sing i think that might be the end of him i think he needs to do it 
Um, yeah. I don't know the guy. I, you know, I, I, I do admire him deeply, but, but I, you know, at times I do think he was more concerned than he might have had to have been about what people think. I don't know. I don't know. Who am I? I'm Blair Park. Cool or not cool? I don't think I'm cool, so I don't know. Who am I? To do? I think you're. I think you're cool. There, there. That's the answer I was fishing for. I, I felt the hook. I felt the hook. I wasn't. I actually wasn't. I'm. 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 I, you know, I think I'm cool. I'm just cool enough. I'm fine. I'm totally fine in my coolness. Um, whether somebody else thinks I'm cool or not, I don't actually care that much. I, there are some people I, you know. There are friends of mine who I love who, if they thought I wasn't cool, I'd be a little heartbroken. But, you know, <laughs> but other than that, I don't really care. On that note, I want to thank you for a wonderful conversation. Um, so I've really fun. learned a lot, and um, I'm really interested in, in pursuing more Steve Earle. Um, he is a, a remarkable songwriter. Um, well, just before you, uh, you leave, um, your last album was Unpopular Pop, 2017, yes? yes. Yep. Uh, Are you going to be putting out a new one? Yes. Um, the short answer is yes. The, the, question, the answer to the question, when, is I don't know. I actually have uh, two or two and a half on the go right now. Um, I have a trio called the impossible dream, Blair Packham and the impossible dream. And we play uh, a stripped down kind of thing. We haven't done any gigs since March. Um, the last one was opening for chalk circle at, uh, um, oh, wow. uh yeah, at uh, Lee's palace. And, and we opened for the Northern Pikes at the horseshoe. Um, oh, cool. and we've done it, you know, did a whole bunch of other gigs and, uh, so forth, but we've been making a record on and off, uh, throughout the COVID period, and it's upright bass, um, some form of drums or percussion, and uh, acoustic guitar, and uh, three voices, and uh, that's one thing. And then I've got something that's more in line with with what I've done before, which is you know more um, I don't know power pop, uh, mm -hmm. you know singer songwriter with a band and loud guitars kind of thing. Uh, oh, good. Yeah, yeah. With, with appearances by friends such as Paul Paul Myers. Yeah, Paul's on, uh, he's always on something that I've done. Um, so it'll be similar to the, you know, I, I haven't yet uh, imposed on Ron Sexsmith to sing on something, but I, I know I will, because why break a trend? Um, <laughs> I, I seem to make a record every five or 10 or 15 years. I might as well, you know, ask Ron. Um, so, so we'll see. Uh, but yeah, I, uh, you know, um, Craig Northey is all over the you know the the singer and writer from the Odds uh, in Vancouver is all yeah. all over uh, my records and I will no doubt ask him again as well. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. Thank you. Thanks again for your time and uh, for the wonderful conversation. I've really appreciated it. I, I had really a great time. It. I really did enjoyed it very much. Thanks to Blair for a really interesting conversation and for turning me into a Dolly fan. You can find Blair's music on Bandcamp and through his own website at blairpackham.com. Until next time, I'm Bernard Fraser saying please support independent artists and stay safe. Stay safe.